So we've been going over Acts, and we're like halfway there. I, prom- I think we're halfway there. I don't know how many more chapters we have. Never read the Bible before. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but one of the things, again, review, just kind of going over what we did last week. Um, the church really strives to keep the unity of the spirit. You know, again, you can have disagreements. There's this big disagreement about circumcision. One side is correct. One side is not. But even within that uh, disagreement, we always have to remember that we are one body. We have to come together, sort things out. Even if it's something small or something big like they're talking about, whatever it is, we have to maintain the unity of the spirit. We also, because of that, we also have to realize and put our trust only in the grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the big thing. This was the question. This is the question that's been going on, whether it's circumcision, whether it's if you drink alcohol or not, whether it's if you go to an R-rated movie or not. Remember, your salvation is not based on what you do. It's based on what Christ has done. And you putting your faith and trust in him alone. And then we have to remember that both Peter and Paul and Barnabas and everybody, not only did they witness this, but they backed it up with scriptures. They went back to the Old Testament and said, oh, yes, this is what God has already said he was going to do. So, yes, we are accepting that the Gentiles, even without being circumcised, or following the law, have received the Holy Spirit, and so now they are one of us. And so they they don't back it up with just personal experience alone. They back it up with Scripture. And then again, lastly, you know, we talk a lot about the Pharisees, and we talk a lot about uh, the Gentiles and all these things. All of us have certain hang-ups and doctrines that we have to whisk through and deal with. That's part of the sanctification process. So here we have where the Pharisees are like, no, you have to follow the law, you have to follow the law, yet they were still believers. There was a group of Pharisees who put their trust in Jesus. They just had some doctrine that they had to work through. So we have to be patient with both the Gentile believers who are newly born, who don't understand everything that needs to happen, and we have to be patient with the Pharisees who try to add rules to people just simply because that's what they know and that's what they're dealing with. So with all that, we're going to continue on. We're going to see that the the apostles and the elders and everybody, they send a letter out. We're going to go through that letter, and we're going to see what they tell the Gentiles. But before we do that, again, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to please guide this time. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our lives to you so that we just don't listen to the word that we actually do it and apply it to our lives. We ask you to bless this time and bring glory for yourself in Jesus Christ. In his holy name we pray. Amen. All right, let's see if this works quicker than it did before. I don't think it will. So far, so good. Hey, there we go. Acts 15, 22 through 23. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, 
and Silas, leading men, from, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. I wanted to stop there because here's the thing. They have this huge discussion. They listen to both sides. They hear what's happened. They verified everything with people's witnesses. They verified everything with scripture. And then after all of that and after prayerfully considering everything, they decide to send a letter to the Gentiles. And here's the big thing, and that's what I wanted to point out. It says, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles. They immediately accept the Gentiles without question. They call them brethren. They are saying, you are one of us. And this is a huge deal. Because, again, these Gentiles have been hearing certain Jews say, no, 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 you're not there yet. You have to A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so the elders and the apostles are embracing the Gentiles and saying, you are one of ours. And again, we've been talking about this, and this is what's going on in Ashbury. The big thing, once again, for the church is to recognize and see what God is doing and just go in that direction. Not try to artificially manufacture anything. Not try to say, okay, that's a really good idea, so we're going to try it on our own over here. But just, okay, God, we see what's going on. We're just going to move in that way. We're going to submit ourselves to your will. Because the problem is, is, is the church, who was predominantly Jewish at the time, they could have held on to their old beliefs. They could have held on to their prejudices. They could have. They could have made that decision. They could have dug their heels in and believe either only Jews can be saved or if you do want to be saved and you're not Jewish, you have to become Jewish. They could have easily do, it, do that. If they had done that, maybe the predominant Jewish leadership at the time could have probably embraced them a little bit more. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and those who were the elite and leadership probably would have softened their stance on the church if the church had decided okay, no, we agree, you have to become Jewish. There could have been even a big movement within the Jewish community about people turning to Christ. But the problem is God would not have been in it. It would have been empty of the Holy Spirit. It would have been man-made. No matter how large or influential the the church might have gotten, It would have no power to actually bring people into repentance and reconciliation to God himself. It would have just been a popular movement. And it would have crumbled into nothing. We wouldn't have heard anything about it today. I mean, history is is littered with powerful and influential people and groups. A lot of them, you can visit their ruins today. You can read about how much authority they have. As a matter of fact, the Sadducees were the top elite of the leadership of the top elite. But as soon as the temple fell and crumbled, their power just came to dust. And there are no Sadducees today. But it was the biggest group out there. It had the most influence. It had the most power 
over people at the time, but because it was based on human effort and human ability and human authority, they have no power and they, they've come to nothing today. Because the problem with keeping our own traditions and doing things our way and doing things how it usually does is it relies on us. And I don't, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I'm a screw-up. So if the pressure is on me, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to miss the mark. I'm going to fall apart. I'm going to make a mistake. All of the pressure and expectations fall on us when we try to do it. And no human has designed to live under that kind of weight. We just can't. We cannot live up to that. But having everything rely on God, see, when you say, okay, God, I see what you're doing, I'm going to go that way, it relies on God himself. And he has enough broader, bigger shoulders than I do to carry the weight. He can keep promises when I can't. He can do the impossible. He can do things that no one else can do because he is perfect. He sees everything clearly, and he knows each and every step that needs to be taken place in order to fulfill whatever it is that needs to be done. Nothing's going to catch him off guard. Nothing's going to happen. In Isaiah 26, 3 through 4, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord The Lord himself is the rock eternal. So again, it's so much easier and so much better for us to say, okay, God, I see what you're doing. I'm just going to, I'll just tag along and see what happens. Once a church stops fully acknowledging and seeing what God is doing, that's when a church becomes dead. This is why I don't like um, statements of, well, this is just how it's always been done. Well, this is what I'm comfortable with. This is, you know, whatever. Because God's ways are higher than our ways, and sometimes we get comfortable with a path, and we create the path, and God's like, wait a minute, I never told you to go that way. I now need you to go this way. And so we need to make a decision. Are we going to dig on our heels and keep going the way just because it's comfortable and it's the way we've always done it, or are we going to actually do what God wants us to do? That's the trick. You actually have to be seeking after God. I mean, we have the Holy Spirit within us, each and every one of us who believes. It's not just the pastor. It's not just the leadership. It's not extra spiritual people, whatever that means. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in him, if you've put your faith totally in Jesus and have been reconciled to God, you have the Holy Spirit within you. You can listen to him. That's the greatest thing about Christianity is you can't. There's teachers and pastors and people who God has appointed within the church to help lead and guide because we're all human beings. I can think something's of God, but it's completely the opposite direction. So we all need each other to kind of keep us all in track. But you have a direct line to God himself. God the Holy Spirit lives in you himself. 
And so the, the letter continues in Acts 15.24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such command. Let me ask you a question. Especially when you were first a believer, did anyone say anything to you or give you some kind of command that was kind of unsettling? Yeah, and it, it really kind of freaks you out. You know, you're just trying to learn. You're just trying to read the Bible. You're just trying to learn about this Jesus that you put your faith in. And someone says, well, you know, as a guy, if you have long hair, you're not really saved. And it's like, what do you mean? I, I, don't, I don't understand. I don't know. And you start kind of panicking and, and all of this stuff. And, I, you know, I'm not talking about, like, being convicted of the Holy Spirit, you know, after you read something or you hear someone speak and the Holy Spirit moves you in a certain direction for repentance or whatever. But, again, it's usually that, this kind of statement. You're not saved if. You're not really saved if, fill in the blank. Again, I've had someone, I went to a church with a friend of mine, and, and God bless him, I, he's a brother in Christ, and I believe that church are still brothers and sisters in Christ, but they were very, very legalistic. They were the King James only. They were the men wear suits, women wear dresses to church. You know, and I had, you know, I had long hair down to my back. And that was a big deal for me to come visit, and I used to get a lot of slack for that. And I was very, very thankful that I was a Christian for a little bit longer before I started just, because I would come and visit every Wednesday or whatever it was. But can you imagine? You're not saved if. You're just trying to figure this out. Again, the whole versions of the Bible thing. You're not saved if you read anything other than the New King James Version. Because that's the only true word of God in English. My goodness. I've heard preachers who have the King James Version, and that's the only thing that they say. And it's read in that Shakespearean words that no one knows today. And then he turned around and explained it. And verbatim, I kid you not, I had the NIV. Verbatim, I read the same scripture, and he explained it the exact same way that the, the NIV read it out. He said, okay, this means this. I think it was mammon means money and all this stuff, and it said it verbatim, what he was explaining. I'm like, how can you say King James only, and you're quoting pretty much the, the NIV? You're not saved if you're not baptized, Tell that to the thief on the cross who was not baptized, who just said, I just believe in Jesus. I believe in you. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. You're not saved. This is a big thing. We're Pentecostal. You're not saved if you don't speak in tongues. Uh Uh-oh. You're not really saved. See, again, speaking in tongues, gifts of encouragement, all these things are great, but don't equate them with your salvation. I mean, there's a plethora of you're not saved if. It can be extremely unsettling and nerve-wracking, problematic. You start worrying, you start panicking, you question your own salvation. You start worrying and freaking out about, okay, what's the next thing then? Oh my goodness, I, 
I watched a TV show instead of reading my Bible for a half an hour. Does that mean I'm not saved? What does that mean? I mean, you can go so far as, as living in constant fear and condemnation and dread, and you begin to look for everything that might risk your eternity. And the most ironic and infuriating thing is, whatever it was, whatever the you're not saved if, sta- if statement is, there was no such command in the first place. It was man-made. That's, so, that's why it's so dangerous for us to add anything to God's word. Be very, very careful with that. It can be so damaging. It can hurt people. It can turn them away from Jesus. And I mean, that, that's the big difference. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you were sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement Desire what zeal, what vindication, and all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So whatever was going on in the Corinthian church, there was godly sorrow placed on that church, and it led them to repentance. It led them closer to God. Because again, worldly correction, worldly fear, worldly sorrow always leads to despair and anxiety. It always has the fruit of losing more and more hope. And has a deep gives you a deeper sense of fear and instability. Godly correction, on the other hand, godly fear, godly sorrow always leads towards repentance. It always has a fruit of deeper sense of hope and trust in Christ. It will always lead you closer to him. So when the Holy Spirit convicts you of a sin, it makes you realize and cling to Jesus even more. Oh my gosh, I am a sinner. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. I need to cling to my Savior even more. That's what godly sorrow does. And so the apostles, they recognize that these new believers are not being given conviction, which would lead them closer to Jesus. What they're being given is condemnation, which is putting a barrier up. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law or else. That is making a barrier. And that, again, is dangerous. And so the apostles are letting them know in some of the first lines of this letter, don't worry, we, God did not give you any such command. We are making that very clear. Whatever it is this group of people is telling you, God did not tell us and we did not tell you to be circumcised and follow the law. And even even Paul, which again witnesses all this, which gives a little bit more credit to what he says, Galatians 5.10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. This is why, again, all of our doctrine, all of our beliefs, all that we do need to be aligned with God. 
because we can be damaging. Our ways can hurt. So the apostles continue on in their letter, Acts 15, 25 through 26. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to, I want to read this passage in Hebrews to you, and I want you to, again, listen to it very, very carefully. Um, it's kind of unknown who wrote Hebrews. There's some who claim that it was Paul. I'm under the idea that Paul wrote Hebrews. And so, remember, these men risked their lives for Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what Hebrews says about Old and New Testament saints. 11, 36 through 38. And I want you to really listen to what this says. It says, Still others had trials of mocking, scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Specifically says, these saints were mocked, scourged, slain, destitute, cut in half. Some of the worst pains in life that they went through. They risked their lives for the message of Christ. And the Old Testament saints didn't even see the promise fulfilled. And yet, they laid their lives down for it. With their dying breath, they passed this message on through the centuries giving it to the next group of people and the next group of people. They risked everything, lost their lives, lost everything to pass on this message. They were rejected even by their own people. They were cast out, they endured hardships, and yet still held on to the promises as they laid their lives down for Christ. They did all of this, they faced everything that they faced so that we today can hear the salvation and the good news of Jesus Christ. Praise Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So we have the staggering legacy in the church as the church today. And I kind of wonder what some of us are doing with it. I mean... What exactly, again, these people uh, suffered and died for? They didn't even have a building. They didn't have a sound system. They didn't have projectors. They didn't have an espresso machine. They didn't have heating and air conditioning. I mean, they didn't even have internet. But there was something that they were willing to give up everything for, something that they held on dear to and risked everything to pass on. And again, this is about the church repenting. The only thing that it was was the gospel itself. It was nothing else. It was the fact that there was a God up in heaven 
who created everything. He created human beings in his image. But unfortunately, humanity has fallen into a sinful state. And because of that sinful state, we have been separated from our creator. God cannot deal, cannot abide in sin. And because of our separation from God, we are bound and condemned to death and hell for eternity. That is humanity's lot. And it's been passed on from Adam and Eve all the way up to now. Every single human being on planet Earth is destined for death and hell. But the good news, again, thanks be to God who loved the world so much, he gave his only son. This Jesus took on our form, lived like we did, endured temptation, heartache, and persecution himself. He lived among us as one of us. He showed us mercy, love, and peace. He taught us, he led us, and he guided us back to the one true path to God himself. And if that wasn't enough, he was willingly beaten, tormented, mocked, and eventually crucified for our sake. The punishment for our sins was laid on his shoulders, and he shed his blood and died on our behalf. And again, if that wasn't enough, He then conquers death for us, raises to life three days later, and then ascends into heaven and is now, right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father as God the Son is making intercession on our behalf. He's putting in a good word for all of us continuously. I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. So that those of us who profess Jesus as Lord and put our trust in him have now this divine exchange where he takes our sins, our punishment, and wipes it away. And in turn, he gives us his righteousness and perfection. So much so that we can have intimate relationship with God the Father and be indwelt with God the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. We are now then commanded by this Jesus to tell everyone we can to preach the gospel to these people and then to teach people to follow in his ways. That's discipleship. That is the gospel that people like Paul and Barnabas are accredited to risking their lives for. I mean, they lost homes, family, friends, their livelihoods for the sake of the gospel that we hear today. Look at Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Again, the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buries and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, Jesus didn't say, 
that these people gave up everything because they found a really cool sound system so that they can come to a nice building on Sundays. They said they sold everything and gave up everything for the gospel. The blood of the saints before us was not spilt for church programs and a really cool media production. On top of the fact that God himself has made a way for us to no longer be condemned to death, there's been so many before us who sacrificed so much for a chance for people like us to be reconciled to God today. This is one of the reasons why sometimes it's, it's honestly downright ridiculous sometimes how churches out there take this gospel so casually and so lightly. You know, we're, we're upset about the air conditioning in the sanctuary being too high or too cold. The music's too loud. It's not loud enough. You know, our church services or our church events are too early. Now they're too late. You know, I just don't feel like this. I don't really want to do this. I don't have time for this or the countless other reasons and, you know, whatever it is. Any of that compared to everything that we just talked about is really kind of absurd. The Christianity we created in this country is quite frankly comical. It's a social club. When you feel like coming, go ahead and come. So we have two groups. We either have this club full of puritanical rule followers who think their own made-up self-righteousness is going to somehow impress God. God is going to be just so impressed by how pure and holy they are. Or we have event setters full of all entertainment and conveniences that we can look for with messages that just make us feel all warm and fuzzy, and we can go home feeling good about ourselves. Both sides look really, really busy, but most often they're completely devoid of any power or actual substance. But again, this is is why risking their lives was was part of Paul and Barnabas' credentials. This is why they wrote this in this letter, Because the people who they were being sent to can say, oh, wow, you actually believe in this stuff. You're the real deal. For you to risk your life and go through everything that you've gone through, this must be real. Why would anyone do this anyways? (laughs) So again, I ask, make sure, What are we really willing to risk for Jesus Christ himself? I'm not talking about the church. I'm not talking about an organization. I'm not talking about a denomination. What are you willing to risk for Christ? And please don't mistake me. I am not here to say, if you're not suffering 24-7, if you're not being persecuted or constantly in danger 365 days of the year, you're not a Christian. Again, remember, you're not saved if statements are problematic. But I'm telling you, if your only credential to your faith is, well, this one time I got up early on a Saturday and went to a men's breakfast, you don't understand it was a Saturday and I had to put pants on and leave the house, then maybe we need to start reevaluating where we're at with our faith. 
I mean, again, 1 Timothy 4, 15 through 16. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that, you progress, that your pro- progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Again, that is the key. Your life actually matches your doctrine. That's why Paul is telling Timothy this. Hey, watch your life. Watch your doctrine. Because if you do, when, people, when you speak, people might actually hear you. That's one of the ways on how the apostles can send Paul and the others to the Gentiles with this, with this particular instruction that we talked about last week. For it seemed good to us, to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Again, they're not trying to give them a new law. They're trying to tell them, hey, these things, as you walk in the faith, remember the law of love. Don't overly antagonize your Jewish brethren. That's all what that is connected to. But the thing is, is these apostles, these leaders, Paul and Barnabas and everybody, they said it and then they lived it. There's a lot of reason why people will dismiss and ignore Christians. Some of it, yes, is because they don't want to hear the gospel message. Because they love the part where it says Jesus loves you. But they don't like the part of saying, hey, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you need to submit to his authority now not your own. There are some people who do that. But a lot of times, and a lot of the reasons why I hear people say, I don't want anything to do with Christianity, I don't take anything they say seriously, is because they say, well, clearly they don't even believe what they're telling me because look at their lives. Look at how they act. Look at what they do. Watch your life and your doctrine carefully because for the majority of us, it's amens and hallelujahs and praise Jesus right now here on Sunday. And then it can be anything but Monday morning. And people watch that and they see that. Remember, actions speak louder than your words. If you truly believe this, then something within you is going to change. Again, this is why I keep saying, don't leave your Christianity at the door today. If you take it with you and live it out, then not only will you save yourself, but those who may listen to you. People want authenticity. They don't want just someone to talk at them. They want them to be shown. Again, I am a sinner. I have sinned against God. I have done things, said things, felt things, thought things, that were completely contrary to God and his ways. And yet, I am here today still with breath in my lungs and my heart beating and saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That means that something in me has to change. If I truly believe that, then my decisions are going to be based differently than if I hadn't. Because if I truly didn't believe in Jesus I'm telling you guys, I wouldn't move to Utah. <laughs> that took a lot of faith and a lot of trust. And okay, God, this is what you're saying. I'm going to go that way. 
But again, match it. I'm a sinner, and God has saved me, and now I am not only forgiven of my sins, I am a child of the living God, heir to the very throne of heaven. Let me show you my life. And just like what Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. I don't want you to just be like me. Look at how I'm following Jesus. Look, I've messed up, and Jesus still picks me up. Do that. Watch me follow Christ, and then you can then also follow Jesus. So again, we're going to finish up, but just remember everything that we talked about today. The trick to anything that we do as a church is, again, to recognize what God is doing and then go in that direction. But the first and foremost thing is we have to be seeking what God is doing. Be careful not to add any rules to being saved. Remember, you're not saved if statements are red flags for biblical, for unbiblical doctrines. And it was the gospel, not fancy shows, not cool, hip, charismatic pastors who people risked their lives for. It was the gospel itself. And the reason behind that is we shouldn't be taking our faith so lightly because of that. It, costs, it should cost us something somehow. Our credentials should be filled with more than just a minor inconvenience for Jesus. And then finally, watch yourselves and your doctrine carefully. People will often look more at your actions and listen, than listen to your words. And if they add up, then maybe people will get saved. And one final scripture as, as the worship team comes up. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, again... I've heard a pastor say, why, you know, once we're saved, why doesn't Jesus just send us up into heaven? It's because we have a purpose here, and that's to tell more people about Jesus so more people can go to heaven and not be condemned to death and hell. We have a race set before us. Let's put the first thing first and run the race that God has prepared for us. Let's pray. Holy Father, We thank you again for your word, for your mercy, for your grace, for your love. We ask you, Father, I ask you first and foremost that help me to repent of anything that I placed before you. Forgive me if I have taken my faith so lightly. And help us all, Father, to recognize exactly what it is that you're doing and just go in that direction. Help us, Father, to match our doctrine with our lives. Help us to remember that we need to put the first thing first. This all needs to be about you. That it's your power, your mercy, your strength, your everything to do everything that you've called us to do. We can't do this ourselves because if we do, it falls apart. Father, help us to keep our eyes on you. Holy Spirit, continue to guide us and help us to listen to you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.